Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about the other enemy that we have on our border. People have to be aware that there are two enemies right on Israel's borders. One is Hamas in the southwest part of the country, Gaza, and the other is Hezbollah, which is in the north in Lebanon and Syria. So two of our borders are facing, or we're facing enemies, serious enemies. Now, Israel is now focused on the threat from Hezbollah in the north, which has actually fired more than 2,000 rockets and dozens of anti-tank guided missiles and drones at Israel between October 8th and January 9th. The threat from Hezbollah in the north is also changing. They've embedded itself within communities in southern Lebanon and over the last several decades, and it, just like Hamas, it has built tunnels and bunkers and also built observation posts. Now, because of this, Israel has evacuated something like 80,000 residents of communities along the northern border. The likelihood of conflict apparently has increased over the last couple weeks. The Ministry Director General, the Defense Ministry Director General of Israel, visited the North last week and detailed the damage caused by by the uh, by Hezbollah to almost 500 homes on the border. Three IDF divisions have been uh, deployed along the border, and they responded, and all kinds of operations, both defensive and offensive. Over 3,400 Hezbollah targets have been struck, and 200 terrorists uh, have been targeted. 150 terrorist cells were struck, and 120 of their observation posts were hit. 40 weapons stores have been struck, along with 40 command and control centers. In other words, Israel knows where the enemy is, where the enemy is located, and Israel is striking at the enemy. At the same time, there's been an increased threat of drones and Israel has focused on this drone threat. It's also focused on preventing weapons from reaching Hezbollah via Syria. Now, most of the Israeli army campaign has been made public through statements about daily retaliatory strikes against Hezbollah. Now, the question is how it might move forces and whether how the enemy may have been degraded, how much has been degraded, and how it could respond to what Israel is doing. 
the Hezbollah threat was in the north was always believed to be much more serious than the Hamas threat in Gaza. That was before October 7th. After October 7th, this led to many questions about whether Hezbollah has been underestimated just like Israel underestimated Hamas. It may be that Hamas was able to exploit an opportunity to achieve its tact and that Hezbollah faces challenges Hamas doesn't face. For for instance, in the north, the terrain is extremely hilly. In Gaza, the terrain is flat. So the the hilly terrain might, uh, in a sense, keep Hezbollah from launching the kind of human wave attack that Hamas did in Gaza, simply because the terrain is different. The, the uh, Hamas attack from Gaza goes across straight level ground. This does not exist in the north. So, uh, nevertheless, the Hezbollah threat is clear. It's carried out near daily attacks on Israel but it did not choose to join a total war in support of Hamas. Instead, it was, it was it conducts smaller attacks in order to sort of normalize the attacks. Prior to October 7th, Israel would never have permitted Hezbollah to fire 2,000 rockets in Israel without a, a returning and starting a major conflict. However, right now, the desire of Israel is to focus on Hamas. So that provides some cover of Hezbollah to change the paradigm in the north. Now, the goal now is to shift that paradigm back. The Hamas massacre has changed the feeling people in Israel has, uh, have about seeing Hezbollah on the border. Now it is understood by Israelis that when terror groups openly parade on the border, it can be a prelude to a massacre, and something must be done about it. And this is very serious. There are several aspects of the Hezbollah threat in the north that are now in focus that were not previously in focus. First, the Hezbollah drone threat has increased. They've used an unprecedented number of drones since October 8th in order to threaten Israel. They have set off sirens to sound in numerous communities. We get these warnings on our telephones, by the way, even here in Jerusalem. And Hezbollah has also tried to target sensitive sites in the north with drones or with missiles, not with attacks by troops. Hezbollah may have overreached. If it is not interested in a larger war, then that's interesting. What's going to happen next? It could be that it has created such, so much terrorist infrastructure that Israel has no choice but to attack. 
Yet it's created a lot of potential targets for Israel and in a sense has become more exposed to Israeli attack. The large number of targets Israel has struck so far is important, but it's unclear what percentage the total they reflect. About 3,000 Hezbollah attacks is similar to the number of Israeli retaliatory strikes. So, what, what, what's happening now? Hezbollah has changed the rules of engagement, and the, the, uh, the question is, what is Israel going to do about Hezbollah while our main effort is against Hamas? The, uh, they're all kind of questions, because the Gaza war is now already into its fourth month, Back during Passover a year ago, there was a rocket barrage from Lebanon. It was considered a big deal. Now the communities targeted near the northern border are evacuated. All the time the radio talked about this cycle of violence. The question is, Hezbollah started this round as well. And Hezbollah, like Hamas, seeks the initiative. They challenge us to take the initiative out of their hands. So, so what I've tried to do in the last 10 minutes is give the uh, listeners an understanding of the two threats that Israel faces on its border. We're faced with Hamas on our south and southeast, southwest, and we're faced by Hezbollah on our north and northeast. So that's, that's a lot of threats against a small country like Israel. So far, we've been ta- paying most attention to Hamas. But this is the reality in which we live here in Israel. I want to give the listeners a picture of it. That's why, for example, you see a lot of reservists go home. There was a time when the reservists went home, they would leave their uh, weapons in the army. Today you see reservists all over Jerusalem, where I live, going out with their wives and children with their weapons over their shoulder because they might be called back at any moment because we face threats on our major borders. Thank God, in the meantime, the Jordanian border is quiet. But the other borders are hot, and uh, we have to be aware of this at all times. And it's a picture I tried to give to the listeners. Uh, now I'll go on to a different topic. And now that we're in the fourth month of the war, I want to say a couple words about the character of the Israeli population. The... Uh, There was a perception before this war that Israeli society was crumbling and that the reservists would not rally to the flag in times of danger. I remember during the big political fights before this war, there were indeed some reservists who said they would not come back to fight if they were called. There was this, it turns out all this was proven false because Israel stood firm 
and for, has been fighting for its very existence since October 7th. Back in 2023, before this war, Israel was one of the deepest crises in the history of the country. Its origins dated maybe five years before, uh, where Israel entered five rounds of elections and had great difficulty putting together a government. The government that was finally formed was a majority of 64 seats, and 64 seats out of a Knesset of 120 seats, and that 64 seats is considered a big majority. And what happened was, after the government was formed, and announced a planned series of changes in the judicial system, and protests broke out against this plan, and there really was a severe crisis. I live not far away from the uh, president's house and from where the prime minister lives, and there were many nights, particularly Saturday nights, when I, if I was away from home for Shabbat, I couldn't come home and park near my house because of the ongoing uh, protests against the government. So there was a significant crisis. Now what that did, it strengthened the estimates of our enemies that Israel was crisis-ridden, the army in doubtful readiness, and leadership in doubtful functionality, and Israeli society divided and polarized so that an attack by our enemies could shatter the state of Israel. That was the thinking of the Hamas leaders, and I guess even the Hezbollah leaders. Our enemies were confident that the sudden attack on October 7th would catch Israelis unready. They relied most of all on the crumbling of Israeli society to make possible their infiltration in every corner of the land of Israel. They expected Israeli resistance to be weak and ineffectual. Their goal was to conquer as much of Israel as they could. And uh, as a matter of fact, they gave the name of their operation the Al-Aqsa Flood. They sought to establish a cohesive alliance with the Arabs of Judea and Samaria and even a portion of the Israeli Arabs who inclined toward the Palestinian vision. Now, the, uh, this is what our enemy thought on that time. And it turns out Israel was certainly caught by surprise but our enemy's evaluation of the situation was overconfidence. Confident. From the first moments of the sudden attack, October 7th, the, an infiltration into Israeli territory by terrorists, and, and the uh, nation of Israel stepped up to defend itself. Many Israelis even reported their duty without receiving emergency orders and without being summoned. Civilians took up their weapons and went into the combat. Enlisted soldiers, reservists, officers, police, and others from throughout the country 
dashed into to the Gaza envelope, and some battled terrorists face to face. Others spent to different locations to defend against further invasion. The the in almost no Israeli home on October seventh, the day passed without ringing telephone. People rushed from communities of Judea and Samaria to defend communities near Gaza. Special units and officers staying in northern Israel, Tel Aviv, headed for the Gaza envelope to defend and recapture the military bases and communities that had been invaded. Heroic civilians arrived to rescue survivors. As in the Yom Kippur War of 50 years ago, almost to the day, the Yom Kippur War is October 6, 1973. Men in skullcaps once more donned their uniforms on the holiday and on the Shabbat. The Simchat Torah Shabbat of October 7th, and since then, everyone, including left-wing and right-wing and secular and observant, and opponents and proponents of the judicial reform have been fighting shoulder to shoulder in the defense of our common homeland. The, so, if October 7th shattered Israel's underlying strategic assumption that Hamas had been deterred, it shattered their assumption that Israel was weak. And uh, over a hundred days after the outbreak of the war, Nasrallah in the north, as I mentioned previously, does not enter into this battle. And of course, Hamas feels abandoned because it was certain the Hezbollah, rather than contending itself with skirmishes, would join in an all-out war, and so would Iran's other proxies. Hamas in Gaza aspire with all its might to emerging on the fronts, a nightmare scenario that was often raised. Now, the question we have to ask, among others, is does Nasrallah in the north want to endanger Lebanon with a war? Is Iran willing to prioritize the preservation of Hamas in Gaza? You have to keep in mind something, by the way. A lot of people are not aware. Hamas is a Sunni Muslim organization. And Hezbollah in the north is a Shiite Muslim organization. And the Shiites and the Sunnis don't really get along with each other. Uh, most of the Arabs are Sunnis. Uh, Iran happens to be uh, Shiite. So uh, the concept of deterrence changed its meaning on October 7th. The notion that our enemies were deterred did collapse. Our enemies were not deterred. And we were the first to suffer and pay for our, our misconception of our enemy. It seems nonetheless that Israel's determined response and solidarity and despite fighting spirit of more than 350,000 reserve soldiers whose rate of response, by the way, 
to the summons was 150%. And his tremendous volunteerism of the Israeli people. So now the, our enemies understand one thing. The nation of Israel is unified, responsive, and united in its fight to beat its enemies. That's the bottom line. Nothing will ever be the same after October 7th. Hopefully, things will be better once we finish this war. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. When I was a kid, the big hope for the world was the United Nations. We, after the Second World War, Everybody thought the United Nations would, if not bring peace, somehow maintain peace. I am old enough to remember the Second World War. I remember all the hopes for the United Nations after the Second World War. And in particular, there is something called the UN Relief and Works Agency, commonly known by its initials, U-N-R-W-A, which I guess is pronounced UNRWA. And it turns out that the, the UNRWA has lost billions of dollars because of anti-Semitism, their anti-Semitism. The ties between UNRWA and Hamas have always been well known. People didn't talk about them, even though they were documented. And last week, a a, a tremendous amount of evidence has come out on just how deeply UNRWA is tied together with the uh, Arab terrorist Hamas. Any rational person can see that Hamas has really taken over UNRWA to the the point that UNRWA is merely an arm of Hamas, and it's masquerading as a humanitarian organization, but it is not that at all. Now, what is UNRWA now? UNRWA is the Central Relief Agency in Gaza, exclusively responsible for Palestinian refugees. Now, there are a lot of refugees in the world. I read somewhere there's like 110 million refugees all around the world. But all other uh, refugees, except for the Palestinian refugees, fall under what's called the UNHCR. 
However, UNRWA, UNRWA was created its own definition of refugees, which only applies to Palestinians, not to any other refugees. And as I said, there may be 110 million refugees in the world, but the Palestinians have their own UN organization. Now, what is a refugee agency, uh, let's say run by the UN, supposed to do? What they're supposed to do, essentially, their main job is to resettle those who are displaced. But it turns out, under UNRWA, Palestinians are the only group of people who maintain their refugee status in perpetuity. In other words, they're already sixth and seventh generation Palestinian refugees. No effort has been made whatsoever to resettle them. As a UN agency, UNRWA is supposed to remain impartial, and its job is to work solely on humanitarian efforts for the Palestinians. However, just the opposite. UNRWA has a history of promoting anti-Semitic anti violence in its own school systems. It teaches kids to hate Jews, glorifying terrorism, and teaching students, first of all, to become martyrs. Worse than that, Hamas regularly uses UNRWA schools as military bases, as places to storage weapons, and as rocket launching pads. So how can an organization that calls itself impartial when it actively promotes Hamas's ideology in the Palestinian school curriculum and gives the terror group the ability to launch all kinds of assaults against Israel, including, of course, the infamous one of October 7th. Since the Hamas-Israel war began on October 7th, more and more evidence has emerged on how Hamas has infested itself within the agency. Unwritten teachers can masquerade as ordinary civilians with legitimate UN employee identification cards. Then at the same time, they work as military combatants for Hamas. Now, we're finding more and more about this as Israel uncovers more and more information in Gaza. The, uh, actually, the initial evidence came about after one Israeli hostage who was released in the first hostage prisoner swap revealed that he had been held captive in the attic of a teacher employed for UNRWA. Now, this, this hostage who was released said he had been locked away for nearly 50 days and was barely provided with food or any medical needs. A month later, UN Watch, which is a Geneva-based nonprofit organization that monitors the UN, revealed that 3,000 UNRWA educational employees 
celebrated the October 7th massacre and called for the execution of the hostages in a telegram channel. This is UN employees. Now, this proves that UNRWA is far from impartial and at the very least complicit in, in what, what Hamas is doing. More evidence has come out on just how involved UNRWA staff are in the murder and kidnapping of Israelis. What we can say is that the United Nations is using taxpayer money from all around the world to fund the salaries of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorists. UN money pays terrorist salaries. That is the truth. We know now that UN employees have been involved in kidnapping hostages, murdering Israelis, and filming hostages being taken captive. Uh, uh, We have information about all kinds of UNRWA workers, supposed to be teachers or supposed to be social workers, but we now know that they were involved in the attack upon Israel. After Israel revealed the crimes of various terrorists, the UN chief, a guy named Philip Lazzarini, released a statement declaring that he was shocked at the revelation and that he announced that UNRWA terminated the contracts of employees who have been Israel knows and can prove are terrorists. However, this did not stop essentially what was a domino effect of nations that suspended their funding to UNRWA after learning about their direct involvement of UNRWA in the massacre on October 7th. Over 90% of UNRWA's funding comes from voluntary contributions from UN member states, they get over a billion dollars in pledges just last year. Now, what's happened is that more than 15 countries have suspended funding to UNRWA, including major donors like the United States, Germany, European Union, Sweden, Norway, Japan, France, and Switzerland. Now, UNRWA is trying to save face in, in light of all these allegations and what it's costing them. So they released a statement claiming that these revolutions are unsubstantiated claims and claimed that, uh, uh, that uh, the uh, UNRWA should not be punished because of a few what they said are bad apples. However, the Wall Street Journal published an expose on UNRWA. According to the Wall Street Journal, an estimated 1,200 UNRWA employees in Gaza are actual employees of Hamas or of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The report in the Wall Street Journal 
said that of under 12,000 employees in Gaza, 23% of UNRWA's male employees took an active part with Hamas, and an estimated half of UNRWA employees have close relatives who belong to the Islamic terrorist organizations. All this was revealed by the Wall Street Journal. Now, the public pretends to be shocked. But anybody familiar with UNRWA cannot be surprised. With the corrupt way that UNRWA has operated in Gaza and its direct ties with Hamas, finding out suddenly their employees were involved in these attacks was inevitable. They had to know this was happening. UNRWA employees have participated in terrorism, They've glorified the murder of Jews. They've pushed anti-Semitic propaganda in Palestinian society. They teach kids in under schools anti-Semitism. And essentially, they're involved in the propaganda that Israel has no right to exist. So instead of pretending to be shocked and horrified, Public figures in the international community people should finally decide to end the funding of UNRWA and end it once and for all. Now, truth of the matter is that the Palestinian people really deserve better. And I say that in all honesty. The Palestinian people aren't going anywhere. Nobody's taking them in. And it, it, apparently we're stuck to have them as neighbors. So there should be an organization that's teaching them what it is to be decent people and to be good neighbors. This is apparently not what the UN people have been doing. The, the Palestinians really deserve better. The UNRWA is a corrupt agency, employs terrorists, and it's a self-serving business that capitalizes on Palestinian suffering. It seems that for the foreseeable future, we're stuck with the Palestinians as neighbors. And the only way to make sure they're good neighbors is to train them to be good neighbors. And one of the first things we have to do is get rid of UNRWA, which is training them just the opposite. Now I want to switch the topic to uh, addressing the question of why are so many young Americans anti-Israel? There was an op-ed piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and it said only 27% of Americans aged 18 to 29 are sympathetic to Israel more than they are to the Palestinians. Uh, as compared to 63% of Americans who are 65 or older who like the Israelis, Israel better than the Palestinians. Now, according to some people, that's because of the policies of Prime Minister Netanyahu, since young Americans know only Netanyahu's Israel. They have no idea of the history of Israel. The... Uh, 
it, it's, uh, does that mean, for example, that all these people between the ages of uh, 18 to 29, who are known, by the way, as Generation Z, Gen Z, uh, does this mean that all all these Gen Z people were pro-Israel was before uh, before uh, Netanyahu was prime minister? The reason for hostility toward Israel among that age bracket is that their ignorance of the history and facts of what's happening here in the Arab-Israel conflict, and they're ignorant of what's really going on here. The, the the specific policies of a particular prime minister don't mean anything to them. They don't know the details. They know a broad picture, and what they know is really very little. And Israel is not to blame because these young people choose to base their views on misleading Instagram photos biased college professors and radical ideologies that falsely paint Israel as a white supremacy state. The uh, ignorance among the younger generation in the United States about foreign affairs is, uh, is uh, pretty much a new problem, is not a new problem. As a matter of fact, if you look at history, back in the 1930s, polls found 63% of college students favored unilateral, unilateral American disarmament. And many thousands of college students then, in the 1930s, signed a public pledge declaring we will not support the U.S. government in any war it may conduct. That's what the young people said in 1930. They didn't know what was happening in Germany and Japan and the world. They were only worried about being drafted. So it was true also of many uh, British university students. In 1934, 25,000 American college students took took part in a walkout from classes to demonstrate their opposition to U.S. involvement in any war. And it got worse. There were all kinds of student anti-war movements, but uh, this changed for various reasons. A lot of it has to do with the fact that, that a lot of uh, students were aligned with the Communist Party, and when the Russians uh, went to war with Germany, they started changing their position. The truth of the matter is, as I understand it, campus political activity is steered by a handful of ideologically driven militants, and they lead the ignorant around by the nose. Most students are not acquainted with history, and because they aren't, they can be led around Probably very few American college students in the 1930s had read Hitler's Mein Kampf, uh, and probably very few today are aware of discovery of Arabic language copies of Mein Kampf in Gaza. Our troops have found copies of Mein Kampf. Those students who I think now are marching against Israel are driven by a variety of motives. They're ignorant, or they're all kind of personal factors. 
they want to join a popular cause, and uh, they, in other words, and they want to do what their friends are doing without knowing what it's really all about. Very sad. Just being a college student doesn't make you smart. If you, if it's interesting. Yes, all these student activists, what their major studies are, what major courses they're taking. And I think you'll find a lot of them are taking courses which either don't teach them anything or else they have instructors who have a certain opinion that they indoctrinate their students with. So we have a problem today with the kids on the American campuses vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but I think that there's not much we can do about it. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. At the previous uh, segment of my program, I spoke about the fact that the Biden administration, among others, is uh, stopping funding the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, which is primarily, the real full title is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. It's a UN organization primarily for Palestinians. Now, as I said, the uh, several governments, including the American, have decided to cease funding them. And it turns out that the leadership of Christians United for Israel, it's an organization, C-U-F-I, Christians United for Israel, has questioned the long-term intentions and effectiveness of the Biden administration's decision to stop funding UNRWA. Now, they're doing an investigation into a dozen UNRWA employees who are alleged to have participated in the October 7th Hamas massacre against Israel. And as I said previously, other countries like Canada and Finland and Australia and Italy and the United Kingdom also stopped their funding. So the uh, the chairwoman of the uh, of the uh, actions committee of the uh, Christians United for Israel said that while we welcome the decision to stop funding, the Biden administration should make this temporary pause permanent. Unfortunately, the State Department's action in this context is typical of their too little, too late approach to the Middle East. No U.S. taxpayer dollars should have been flowing to UNRWA ever, just as no sanctions relief should have been provided to Iran. 
the the head of the uh, of the uh, Christians United for Israel said, "I love to believe the Biden administration has learned its lesson, but how much time do we really believe will pass before the White House turns the spigot back on and provides money to UNRWA?" Now it's interesting. The uh, Christians United for Israel, which is known by its initial CUFI, has over 10 million members and is considered the largest pro-Israel organization in the United States. It has what is called Action Fund, which works on Capitol Hill in Washington to ensure America's elective officials hear the perspective of these millions of Christian Zionists across America about Israel. The, um, the, uh, the UNRWA commissioner, as I mentioned, uh, said that Israel's provided information about the alleged involvement of some of their organization employees in the October 7th massacre. So uh, the, the UN is really has its back against the wall. Because there's all kind of proof that its employees are acting in an anti-Israeli manner. The uh, the founder of Kufi of of the Christians United for Israel is a chair and the chairman. His name is Pastor John Hagi, and he said he was a poor, but I'm not surprised. He said that the UN is a cesspool of anti-Israel hatred, and UNRWA is one of the primary organs associated with normalizing and institutionalizing international anti-Semitism. Now, what's happened is, under this pressure, the Biden administration announced it had temporarily paused funding for UNRWA, and uh, they said the Biden administration made a statement and he said, while we review these allegations and the steps the United Nations is taking to address them, uh, they're under review. UNRWA plays a critical role in providing life-saving assistance to Palestinians, including essential food, medicine, shelter, and other vital humanitarian support. Their work has saved lives. It's important that UNRWA address these allegations and take any appropriate corrective measures, including reviewing existing policies and procedures. In other words, the American government says that we're not we're going to stop funding to UNRWA temporarily, and we're essentially asking UNRWA itself to review itself and see whether its uh, members have been doing anything bad, anti-Israel. Now, it's interesting that, that the former American president, Donald Trump, suspended funding or honor back in 2018. He said that the organization was unredeemably flawed. But however, in, in 2021, the Biden administration reversed the decision, began funding UNRWA again. And now, they're, uh, in light of the present allegations against UNRWA workers, so they are temporarily uh, suspending their funding of uh, UNRWA. And Pastor Haggie said that the America's reinstating funding for UNRWA was a mistake. We knew UNRWA was complicit in Hamas's anti-Semitic indoctrination of 
generations of people in Gaza, but it's clear they've taken the next logical step. They joined Hamas's terrorist ranks. That's what the Pastor Haggis said. The uh, the the uh, the Kufi, that is the uh, Christian Night for Israel, called on the U.S. and United Kingdom to spend funding all week back in December. And uh, they said that UNRWA has helped Hamas maintain its grip over Palestinian people, infect children with anti-Semitic lies, and divert resources toward building and, re- and maintaining the most significant terror infrastructure in the world. All this was said by Hagee. President Biden should follow Germany's lead by ordering a suspension of U.S. taxpayer dollars to an organization that provides in-kind contributions to murderers and hostage-takers. Not one penny should flow to UNRWA for Americans until the U.N. reforms itself to ensure it helps and not hinders the Palestinian people. That's what Pastor Haggis said. We can only agree with him. And the truth of the matter is, when you think about aid to uh, Gaza, you have to realize something. The Gaza is being destroyed by the war. That is, the buildings are being destroyed. So Gaza's material welfare has been devastated by this war. But much of its moral and ethical well-being was destroyed by Hamas decades ago. The, uh, a political scientist named Benedict Anderson dissected, uh, and a, he wrote a book called Imagine Communities, and he dissected how nations develop a sense of identity. He argues that nations are a cultural con- construct that can be shaped. Now, in the case of Gaza, hatred, violence, and terror have been normalized. So that is why 3,000 terrorists crossed the border on October 7th uh, to destroy people, because that's how they have been educated. At the heart of the identity, the Palestinian identity that precipitated this chaos, Essentially, there is a warped ideology which indoctrinated them. An estimated 100,000 children underwent military training in Gaza and were taught to to respect armed resistance. They did this in summer camps across Gaza every summer. And this supplements their everyday schooling, which has been documented to contain hatred toward Jews in Israel, incitement to violence, and glorification of martyrdom. That is what has been the educational system in Gaza since the Palestinian Authority or the, or, or the Hamas took over. It doesn't matter which, which particular Palestinian group is, uh, is running this show. They are educating their children to hate Jews. And all this 
is exacerbated by leaders of religious institutions. Now, Hamas, for example, controls the media and social media propaganda, so it essentially fuels a culture of death and destruction. So you can say that what happened in October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. The seeds of terror were carefully sown by Hamas in classrooms and summer camps, from pulpits and TV screens. Media reports are increasingly detailing how Gaza's schools are being harnessed by Hamas to launch attacks, educate their children, and incidentally, they're using the schools also to store weapons. So, if if the stated aim now is to destroy or root out Hamas, and and if it's achieved, what will fill the vacuum left by the absence of Hamas? That's a big question. You would like You'd like the education in Gaza to be very different than what it's been. So according to this book, which I quoted, Imagine Communities, by political scientist Benedict Anderson, he has a thesis, and his thesis is that the Gazans get a new sense of identity and can be constructed in place of Hamas hate And just as Hamas hijacked education to poison young minds, education can fuel a new and brighter future. Now, incidentally, there are historical precedents. Japan's post-World War II transformation from what it was into an economic powerhouse is something of a 20th century miracle. It's no coincidence that just one month after Japan's surrender in 1945, the American administration introduced new education policy guidelines that focused heavily on fostering a sense of cooperation, open-mindedness, and love of peace, and the Americans changed the Japanese education after the war. And that is why Japan is what it is today. Now, interestingly enough, in Saudi Arabia, the educational system has less and less anti-Semitism. So it's taken out of its textbooks, and there's a greater sense of gender equality being taught. So, so, in a sense, Saudi Arabia is changing. So, obviously, no single curriculum is perfect, but you can change things by changing the education. So, what happens is, when all this fighting is over, the first step is to change Gaza's education. So the, the education is the key. is something that was done uh, with the, um, there was a fellow who was the dean of a school in Australia. His name was Benjamin Levy. And uh, he, he said that the, uh, 
the first thing you have to do is to plan what you want the future product of your education system to look like. So Gaza's education has to be planned. You have to define what should a graduate of this educational system be like. And when you, you know what you want a graduate to look like, you work backwards and develop each detail, each detail of the curriculum, each lesson plan, and all kinds of enrichment activities accordingly so that you will get the kind of graduate that you want. So in the context of Gaza, a new educational reality will mean ensuring that graduates become productive members of society. It will mean that graduates from beginning, from kindergarten, have to be educated and committed to building a prosperous and peaceful area. The, so the, uh, the essentially, everything depends on the educational system. Right now, when I think about it, you know, for the next 30 years, we have to deal with the Palestinians who have been created by the Palestinian Authority for the last 30 years. They're not going to go away. The, uh, the, the, we have to start now to change the educational system in Gaza so in the long run it will produce people that we can live with. These are not vague concepts. The, 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 you have to have an educational system that will define what the next generation is going to look like. Such an, an educational system requires investment, careful planning, and just as you rebuild Gaza, if you're going to rebuild Gaza, as long as the Palestinians are going to be there, we must rebuild the educational system. Otherwise, we're going to have the same thing over and over again. Any failure to prioritize education at the heart of Gaza's post-war plans, if the Palestinians stay there, that will mean that new neighborhoods and new buildings will, will be just the same. They'll house the same hate unless there is a change in the educational system there. Without that, we're going to have the same problem over and over again. So I don't know what's going to happen to the Palestinians after this war is over, but if they're going to remain in Gaza, we've got to rebuild their educational system Otherwise, we're going to refight this war every few years. And that, that is simply not something that we want to look forward to. It is simply not enough to win the war in Gaza. We're going to win that war, hopefully with a minimum of Israeli loss of lives. But we're going to have to fight this war every few years again if the Gazans are going to remain there and, not, and we don't control their educational system. We must control their educational system 
and see to it they are trained and educated to understand that they must live in peace, not only with Israel, but with the entire world. It's not enough to destroy Hamas and its weapons. We have to destroy the Hamas way of thinking. And the only way to do that is through education that we control. We cannot allow the Palestinians to control their own education because they will reproduce the same things that we are fighting now. So it's not just a question of winning the war physically. It's a question of winning the future. And we can only win the future if we can control the future. And we can only control the future if we can control the education for the future. If not, then we're going to have to go through this every few years, which is something we don't want, not for our children and not for their children either. So the bottom line, we must control the Palestinian education. And if we don't, we'll be in big trouble in the future. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say something about the, a little bit about the academic institutions in the United States and the anti-Israel activity that's taking place on their campuses. One of the schools that really has gotten into a lot of trouble is the University of Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater. And uh, so I, I show a lot of interest, personal interest in what's happening on the campus because I remember when I was a student many years ago, not only was there uh, no uh, anti-Semitic activity, but it was a very busy um, Hillel house that grew up and was one of the biggest, and I think, believe in the country, outside of New York. I remember they had a uh, kitchen. You could have lunch there. You could eat lunch with all kinds of levels of kosher food and they're all kind of activities, and now it turns out that the Jews on the campus are very worried about their very existence. And I think that uh, uh, some of the world's leading academic institutions, uh, there are difficulties facing thousands of Jewish students on campuses across the United States. Now, for many years, the, this has not been on the agenda of Israeli governments. 
They preferred to deal with issues of direct concern to Israel. Israeli governments are always dealing with security and defense and foreign affairs. And gradually, Israel's involvement, if there was any to begin with, their involvement with leading academic institutions simply diminished. And when a vacuum is created, opportunities arise. And in this way, what's happened is the global academic arena, particularly the United States, has become increasingly focused on human rights, on gender equality, on the LGBTQ plus affairs, and recently, particularly because apparently a number of um, Palestinian or Arab students on the campuses, they've been taken over by Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's been taken over practically and entirely by anti-Israeli and anti-Zionist forces. Now, this is problematic for several reasons. The first concerns the connection with Jewish students worldwide. There are currently about 800,000 Jewish students across the world, 800,000, and many of them are studying in prominent institutions, particularly in the United States and in Great Britain. And a considerable number of these students, uh, not as many as we would like, but a considerable number consider themselves ambassadors on the campus uh, for the Jewish people and also for the state of Israel. So what happens is that in the current circumstances, these students, they are, must be given the feeling that they are not alone. They need support and they need assistance. And also they need knowledge and ability to face radical anti-Semitic elements. And the truth of the matter is, I think, they need Israeli involvement in academia that will give them legitimacy and tools to stand by Israel. Uh, these are very challenging times. Uh, no less importantly, Israel must cultivate rela relationships and influence the leading academic institutions. Whether we like it or not, the next generation of world leaders is going to come out of these colleges, particularly the top top universities in the United States. So Israel really has no choice but to get involved and try to get as much influence as possible in these universities, which are essentially part of the power centers of the future. So we have to find ways to convey the Israeli narrative and address the challenges in these institutions in order essentially to influence future world leaders, particularly in the United States. Now what's happening is the, the nation of Qatar is spending millions, billions I think, 
of dollars in these universities and student unions, and they have influence. Qatar has influence at top academic institutions. Eight U.S. presidents have graduated from Harvard. Other presidents have come from Columbia, the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, and also from Yale. Now, you have to ask yourself an interesting question. What do, <coughs> what do all these institutions have in common? The answer is they are all academic institutions that are currently at the heart of the storm against Israel. And all of them, all these campuses, are witnessing anti-Semitic protests. So the, the, the fight for, the, for Israel on the university campuses in the United States where tomorrow's leaders are being produced, it's a real fight, it's a real battle. Therefore, the academic arena is one of the most important battlefronts and Israel must get involved by helping the students on the campuses do all they can that there should be some kind of Israeli presence on the campuses. And I don't mean necessarily Israeli students, of course. I mean, Israel should invest in those Jewish student groups who are supportive of Israel, and they will be the front line on the campuses. That's the way it really is. And I think the Israeli government, particularly after the terrible hearings of the presidents of the universities last month in the United States, the Israeli government, particularly, I guess, the Foreign Service, should look into strengthening the Israeli uh, presence, or I, I don't really mean the presence of Israelis, but support for Israel on the campuses, which should be done through the Jewish organizations. I think it's very important. And let's see what happens in the immediate future. Hopefully, the Israel has learned and the Israeli Foreign Service has learned the importance of the U.S. campuses. I want to say a few more words about a subject that I've spoken about before because I think it's important. I'm talking about the uh, what's happening on the U.N. Um, the, uh, the when. There are UN organizations that are supposed to take care of refugees around the world. There is a UN agency called the High Commission for Refugees, and the the UNHCR. And the goal of the of the UNHCR was, and I quote, to help the millions of Europeans who had fled or lost their homes. This was created after the Second World War. Truth of the matter is, they use the word European, but they're actually involved in, involved in helping refugees all around the world. There's a tremendous number of refugees around the world. Uh, I don't remember the exact number. I saw it the other day. It was you know, 110 million, something like that a lot of them, particularly in Africa. 
the mean the the there were Palestinian refugees uh, who were left Palestine, but there's also about seven hundred thousand Jews who were forced out of Middle Eastern countries when Israel came into um, existence. Many of these Jews in places like Morocco, places like Iraq, had lived there for thousands of years. Their communities were kicked out overnight. Part of the grand plan of the Arab countries to keep the, uh, the rejection of Israel active was to give special recognition to the Palestinians by giving them their own agency. In other words, the UN High Commission for Refugees does not cover Palestinian refugees. They have their own refugee agency, and uh, the, uh, they have the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. That's UNRWA, and it's particularly geared for Palestinian refugees in the Near East, UNRWA. So, rather than uh, try to resettle Palestinians or to integrate them into other societies, the, the UNRWA's goal is to perpetuate Palestinian refugee status. How else can one explain why there are UNRWA supervised refugee camps in the midst of the Palestinian Authority's largest cities, nearly 30 years after the Palestinian Authority assumed control? There are major UNRWA refugee camps near, for example, near Jenin and near Annapolis. This, this is, these are areas that are under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Why are Palestinians held there as refugees? The, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it said, UNRWA has kept Palestinians in permanent refugee camps. So this has led to raising generations of Palestinians who are fed on the lie of return to Israel and treating these people as as refugees who are not capable of standing on their own two feet. We already have perhaps six and almost seven generations because a lot of the uh, Palestinians marry early. They have kids right away. So you have at least six generations of, of uh, refugees, and there's no end in sight. So uh, neighboring Arab countries have done their share of instilling hatred for Israel and hatred for Jews by simply not absorbing the Palestinians within their own borders. They could have been... Uh, um, assimilated uh, into local society. The one place, by the way, where this has occurred is in Jordan. Uh, there, it turns out, we now know that there were UNRWA employees involved in the massacre that took place on October 7th. 
and their facilities of Runra and Gaza are being used to assist the war effort. They uh, they they hide uh, ammunition there. They hide the weapons there in these uh, UNRWA facilities. So uh, what? Obviously, UNRWA is an extremely corrupt agency, and it's uh, apparently decided not to be part of the solution to the refugee problem but part of continuing the refugee problem. And the time has come to do away with UNRWA uh, because it's not doing anything for the Palestinians, it's not doing anything for Israel, and it should be put out of existence. Now I want to go on to a a very different um, subject, but I think something has to be saying about talking about the Haredi population here in Israel. Uh, Haredi is sometimes called ultra-Orthodox. And uh, in the United States, the uh, Haredi community, uh, and I know from personal experience in my, my wife's family, that uh, they, they take part in normal life. They work. They don't generally go into the uh, professions that require university education, but they go with a lot of professions and, and of course, business. They don't just um, tuck themselves away in yeshivot and academic institutions until retirement. They, so what's happening now here in Israel, there is an ongoing transformation of the Haredi community and it's pretty much reshaping the community's traditional roles. And what's central to this change are the related issues of military service and economic engagement of Haredi men. It's very common for Haredi women to work, not Haredi men, and now the men are coming into the labor field. So these once distinct challenges have been linked by state policies because the government has supported much of this preliminary by the um, pressure of the uh, Haredi parties in the Knesset. But this is slowly changing, and the war that we're um, undergoing now has made a lot of Haredi look to the fact that they are not part of the general society and many of them want to be part of the general society. There used to be a fear associated with army enlistment because they were afraid of the erosion of Haredi values and the risk of becoming secular. That was so profound that many in the Haredi community decided that if the only pathway to the workforce was through the army, they would neither list in the enter the workforce. And this resulted in tens of thousands who might have entered the world force choosing not to do so. Contrary to the expectations, many Haredi men continued their religious studies and they opted out of military service and they opted out of the secular job market at the same time. 
Now, in the last decade, there's been a significant shift in the community dynamics in the Haredi community. The the, uh, the government has acknowledged the unique needs of the, of this community, and it amended its legislation to Al Haredin to enter the workforce at the age of 26 without having completed military service. There are those who want to reduce this to the age of 23, but I don't think this is going to pass. There's a growing understanding of the Haredi community's fears and values. Consequently, there's been a, a large increase in the number of Haredim participating in the workforce, and also because of the war we're under now, a lot of Haredim have become interested in actually serving in the army. So the for years, the Haredi community looked upon those who choose to work or serve in the army as second-class citizens, and this is changing. And that's really important because the Haredi community is growing as a, a significant portion of the entire population. And we can't have a situation where a portion of the population is, su- is supporting another portion. Everybody has to be involved in, in, in providing for the defense of the country and for the economic growth of the country. And this is starting to change. I've been doing some reading about, we'll have some more details about Haredi community change, and I'll share it with the listeners. By the way, I expect not to have a program in Mitzvah for a couple weeks. I will be off the air. I'll be back in a couple weeks. So take care of yourselves. This is Jay Shapiro signing off, wishing well to all the listeners and to all of Israel. Until next time, take care of yourselves.